So I would invite you to open your Bibles. There's some <laughs> mistakes that are here in the scripture listings. These were put in after our secretary did the final edit, and I went in and snuck in some things, and boy, oh boy, did I sneak in some mistakes here. Um, it's Hosea 2, verse 23, because 24 and 25 don't exist. I'm not sure what happened there. Um, we're not trying to add to scripture, of course. First uh, Kings isn't 9, it's chapter 19, verses 14 through 18. And then, of course, Zephaniah 2, 7 and 9. I'm going to read those passages, but I didn't want you to get lost or wonder why your Bible may not have those. I'll start left or in uh, the book of Kings and move right into Hosea uh, and then into Zephaniah. So, tonight I want to talk about the concept of remnant, that idea that we see developed throughout Scripture. It is a blessed idea. It is a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness um, as it relates to that chosen seed, that body, that people, that family of God that are built upon Christ and how that principle is carried throughout Scripture, that theme is carried throughout Scripture, of course, eventually in the New Covenant, exploding the people of God. And so I'll read first from 1 Kings chapter 19. You'll know this passage. It comes after Elijah's victory at Mount Carmel. The drought ends, Elijah flees from that wicked queen Jezebel, and he goes and he finds himself in a cave, and he speaks to the Lord, and the Lord speaks to him, and he's complaining. After that great victory, these moments, these high and lows in the life of Elijah the prophet, uh, this is where we find him in verse 14 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Here's it, here it is, verse 18. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there is that idea of the remnant, remnant in 1 Kings chapter 19. And then let's go to Hosea. Chapter 2 speaks of God's redeeming purposes. He will, in order to build a remnant, he must call them out of darkness. He must call them away from their sins. Hosea chapter 2, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, that is the people of God, and I will have mercy on who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, You are my God instrumental in how the remnant is built. And in Zephaniah, we looked at chapter 2 last Sunday evening as God calls those inhabitants of the southern kingdom Judah to repentance. And part of the proclamation of judgment, it begins with a call to repentance so that you might be hid from the judgment. But what will happen after the judgment and through the judgment is that God will be purifying the land of sinners and he will give that land then to the remnant when they return. 
We see that in verse 7, the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there in the houses of Ashkelon. They shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. And then in verse 9, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Having read all these things, the holy word of God, let me pray for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, be with us tonight. Our longing is that we might not only know uh, the facts of the Bible, all the books, Lord, have Scripture memorized, but that we might see Scripture as this glorious unfolding of your saving purposes for your people as you establish a kingdom here on earth and how you will fill that kingdom with people, the redeemed, And so tonight, help us to understand this blessed concept, this idea of your holy church, your uh, invisible church, your elect, that you have preserved on the face of the earth now for some six millennia, that you would continue to do so into the future, even as we see that number grow and grow and grow like water covers the sea. Lord, be with us tonight. Help us to understand these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This concept of remnant is a blessed theme as we look throughout the scriptures. It is a testimony of God's promises coming true. And God is the one who does this. And so tonight as we look at this idea that's not introduced in Zephaniah, but Zephaniah speaks here in the midst of judgment He speaks, he sneaks in, the Holy Spirit, of course, sneaks in these little statements about how God will, even in the midst of judgment, that judgment, that purification of the land, as it spits the rebellious ones out, there will be some who will come back into that land. Now, that prophecy, that promise is fulfilled most immediately when the captives of Babylon and later Persia go back to the land of Israel and under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. The story of Nehemiah is as, is as pertinent to... It's all scripture, right? It's always... It's God-breathed. It is always profitable for teaching and training and rebuking, all of that. But there are some moments in our lives, you might call them cultural moments, to use that sort of cliched phrase, where we need men like Nehemiah who was up on a ladder one day working, and there were some people that came and said, hey, they're spreading some nasty rumors about you like Gashmu, saying, oh, don't listen to those Christians. And Nehemiah stood at the top of the ladder and said, I'm not coming down. I got work to do. Don't get, don't get involved with that. Don't take the bait, as they say. We need to understand that as God has made promises to his people, one of those promises is uh, there will always be a remnant of the saints on earth. Now, we are in a different position that Zephaniah and the faithful of the Old Testament were in. When God was talking to Elisha, or Elijah rather, he was complaining like pastors are wont to do. Lord, it's just me. <laughs> what, 
What a bum. Now, you can understand what Elijah was doing and how he felt. There was an enormous amount of pressure. But many of these prophets embodied the struggle and the angst of contending against evil. And these were wicked kings and queens at times of Israel and those who inhabited the land. And Elijah, having just defeated the prophets of Baal, big W, right? Big win. One of the great stories of the Old Testament is already asking and complaining to the Lord. Not asking, just complaining. I'm it. And the Lord says, no, there's 7,000 elect. Just 7,000. Now, for Elijah, it was, okay, I can work with that. Uh, but there are times where it seems as though the saints are in certain places in the world fighting a losing battle. That perspective, God wants to change through the idea of his covenant faithfulness exhibited in the remnant. Now, I want to make three points tonight as we're looking at these texts and that overall theme. I guess you could call this a bit of a thematic sermon as we pause, sort of, in the book of Zephaniah because these things are important for us today. The first thing as it relates to a remnant I want to talk about, is a chosen family. The second, a redeemed family. And then thirdly, a thriving family. A chosen family, a redeemed family, and a thriving family. Family here would be the word I would use for remnant. Now, the remnant, as far as we see, begins in creation. That is, we see men put, or a man and a woman, placed in the garden, and they are meant to be the founders of humanity. Now, as it relates to the chosen family, we know that the family of God was chosen before the foundations of the world were laid. That you and I, ever before we live today, Romans chapter 9, Paul says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God's electing purposes are timeless. They exist before creation. And in the mind of God, there is a logical order. The decree of election exists prior to the decree of creation. Now, that's a strange idea. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail anymore. Maybe on a Friday night back on the back patio sometime. But the remnant is expressed physically in time and space with people. God makes a man... He brings forth a woman from that man, and they are meant to be the seed of all humanity. And they are. But as soon as they are called and they are instructed, they are warned not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a garden of yeses and a tree of no, and they choose the one no. But even then, God chose out from that sinful people a remnant. I spoke of it this morning, the idea of, an, of enmity, that there would be one family that would be on the rise, there would be one family on the fall, uh, on, the, on the decline, rather. Uh, that family that would be preserved out of all the earth from destruction is the remnant. It is the family of God. And so the origin, not of the decree of election, but the expression of it on earth begins with creation. It is established by the covenant of grace. Now, Adam and his wife were operating under a covenant of works in the beginning. They were told to do something. They did not do it. 
They were told not to do something, and they did that instead. They violated the covenant of works, or the covenant of life, as our confession speaks of it. That one act of disobedience brought sin into the world. But instead of just assigning all mankind to judgment, God chose one people, and he condemned another. The chosen, as I've said already, are the remnant. And that remnant is established by another covenant, not the covenant of works, but the covenant of grace. That remnant that is established soon after the fall is born of a gracious and condescending. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. God condescends to us and responding not with pure wrath, but also the promise of deliverance. And so two families... One in the Old Testament, larger and seemingly more powerful and successful, Egypt. One smaller, chosen, nothing to look at, the sons of Jacob, of Israel. We see that in the Old Testament. It seems as though there are times where all of those who belong to the seed of the serpent are winning the battle against the seed of the woman. And that is because... Something integral in the building of the body of Christ and the kingdom of Christ has not yet happened. In fact, two things. The incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah, and the sending out of the Holy Spirit. That is very important as it relates to the concept of the remnant, but we'll get there. The remnant, though, is built on grace. Not upon something in each man, but it is born of God's love for sinners. Jacob was part of that remnant, because God chose Jacob. And honestly, if you do a study on the life of Jacob, oh, he struggles. <laughs> Even in his life as an old man with the sons, he was, a, he was a fearful coward at times, even towards the end of his life before they went to Egypt to see his son Joseph. But what we need to see as it relates to the family is that the remnant... The family of God is chosen by God. And they are what they are because God has placed his covenant love and affection upon them. It is nothing in us. It is all of God's mercy. And not only is it a chosen family, it is a redeemed family. The Old Testament reality of the remnant is that those who were not have become the children of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God, I think it's very clear as you look even at the laws of the Levites uh, and the law of, that you find in the Torah, that the nation of Israel was more cordoned off. There was greater, brighter caution tape, as it were, surrounding the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel was not filled only with Israelites or sons of Abraham. When Israel left Egypt, they also took Egyptians with them, not as slaves, but as free men, who said, your God is greater than the gods of Egypt. We believe in your God. Is that not conversion? Your God made the heavens. I am did all of this. But even still, in the Old Testament, there were greater external points of division between the nation of Israel, or they should have been, and the rest of the world. Their reason why laws like don't wear garments blended with two types of fabric existed. Why is that? Is God just a fashion snob? No. You couldn't mix wool and cotton 
to natural fibers. There was no such thing as polyester at this time. There were no Sprite bottles that they turned into fabric. Why? Because God was saying to Israel, you may not be blended, knit together with the world. You must be separate and distinct. And so all of these laws in the Old Testament were reminders of their need to be distinct from the world around them. And not only were they more cordoned off, but I said already, as it relates to the Old Testament reality of the remnant, they were smaller and seemingly weaker. Now, they were not always weaker. There were times where, with a much smaller force, God delivered Israel out of the hands of their enemies. In fact, their weakness came in relationship to their disobedience. When they disobeyed the word of God, they showed themselves to be susceptible to the dangers to the persecutions, to the being carried away like we see in Zephaniah by nations like Babylon. But I think all in all, as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is right for us to say that there was a weakness present in the Old Testament that is not present in the New Testament because one person of the Godhead had not yet been revealed to move with the same level of power and indiscretion, as it were, that the Holy Spirit would come and do later on. So what happens in the New Testament is actually incredible. And the book of Acts gets started off with a bang as the Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost and then from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the other ends of the earth so that wherever you go now in this world, you'll probably find someone who's a member of the remnant, an elect person, a true Christian, Someone who confesses Christ in some language or tongue you didn't even know existed. There are dialects, there are languages in this world that there are people who live in the same country don't even know exist. And the Spirit is there because the Word is there. Because someone preached, they learned that language, or some Wycliffe Bible translator sat there and did the hard work of translating the Scriptures into their native tongues. And so what, what's, what was once a smaller percentage of a larger number has become a larger percentage and will one day be the dominant force on earth. This is the parable of the yeast or the leaven that works its way through the loaf. In the Old Testament, they're told, avoid the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. But in the New Testament, what do we read? Or the leaven of sin. The New Testament tells us what? You are the leaven. It was once, do not be infected by the world, and now it's what? Go infect the world. You go out into the world and make known the glories of Christ. And the Spirit will, in His power, as He is sent by the Father and the Son, take dominion. Now, Zephaniah here in chapter 2 is speaking of that remnant principle that once God has judged the unrighteous and purged the land of sinners, God will, in his grace, bring back into that land those who are, in the first part of chapter 2, those who seek the Lord, those who are meek, those who have helped upheld justice, who seek righteousness, who seek humility. The remnant is hidden from the wrath of God. And so as it relates to this redeemed family, it's a growing family. 
and it is an ever-present family. There will always be a remnant, as we saw in 1 Kings chapter 19. God will preserve for himself a people throughout all the earth. And the only way that you and I get into that family, that we become a remnant, is that we are torn off from the world. The idea of a remnant is that fabric that is left over when a project is done. There's a little bit laying on the floor maybe or folded up on the table. We are those who are called out of ecclesia, out of the world. And we are called to be God's beloved children. Now in the book of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet. What a calling. God called him to marry a prostitute and to have children with that prostitute. And she was not a faithful wife. And the Lord is showing through his prophet, this is the kind of people I have married. You, Israel, are Gomer. And I am like Hosea. And so in Hosea chapter 2, which may be one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole of Scripture, it's a love poem that God is writing to his people. And he says, I will sow her for myself in the earth. Her is the church. Myself is Yahweh. The earth is the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Who describes or calls possession first? It is always God. God puts his name in our mouths. He loves us. And his promise for those whom he has chosen is that he will sow us like a seed in the earth. And there we will remain. We will not be blown away in the judgment, but we shall be hid in the day of wrath. In Romans chapter 9, Paul actually quotes Hosea. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. See, the Old Testament is full of God's gospel promises. In fact, Paul puts an even finer point on it in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. He writes, and that he might reconcile, that is he, Jesus Christ, he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near, for through him we have both access by one spirit to the Father. Christ has done, is he has torn down the dividing wall, not just between Jew and Gentile, but he has brought Jew and Gentile together into covenant fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You and I are members of the family of God. If we are members of the family of God because God has chosen us, he has elected us, he sent his son into the world to die for us, and he has by his spirit called us and made us alive, regenerated us. And through this new birth that we call being born again, we are born into a family and adopted and brought to the table of God, and we are now heirs. Of what? Not just a southern kingdom there in Judah, 
That's not the land we are waiting for. We will inherit the earth. Sometimes my wife and I lament the fact that we would love to go to Europe, but she hates to fly. (laughs) Well, sweetheart, I guess we could take a boat, (laughs) but that would use up all the vacation days I have just getting there. I say maybe one day in the new heavens and the new earth when it's fully realized, we'll get to go to Italy. Who knows? There's much debate about where we will end up, what kind of bodies we will have. But we do know this, that the family of God is promised something, that God is true to his promises, that even now he is building a family, and that family is built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so that leads me then to my final point this evening, a thriving family. The family may begin small. In fact, if you go back and even look at your own photo books, maybe those of you who are married and had children, you look at those days when it was just two of you. Maybe you even have some old pictures of when you were in college and you were just by yourself. And then this special person comes into your life. And you have pictures with her or him. And then there's the day of your wedding and there's more pictures. And then there's the day of the birth of your first child. And then children just keep coming and coming and coming. And what do you see? That two have become, well, I look at my own parents. Two of them married in 1976. I believe that's right. They had three children. Well, they had four. One died. Three remained alive. And those three got married. And so now they have three more sons and daughter-in-law. And those three sons, or a son and a daughter-in-law and two daughters and two sons-in-law have had 12 grandkids. And so now all of a sudden, two have become, well, do the math. I can't do it that fast in my head. It's been a while since I've made a reservation somewhere for 18 or 20. Do the math. How? And every single one of those, and even now there's a great-grandchild. And that great-grandchild was sort of added into the side (laughs) through marriage. And who knows what will continue? How is that possible? Because the Spirit is as effective in His call as Christ was in His. In fact, it borders upon blasphemy to say that the Spirit will not be successful in His mission For what he is sent to do. Now the spirit blows where the father wills. The question is what does the father will? The father loves to build his family. In the same way that parents, godly parents, love to build a family. How much more our heavenly father. And now... There is nothing, in essence, covenantally speaking, in terms of redemptive history, that limits it. Because Christ has died, Christ is raised, and the Spirit has been sent out into all the earth. And the remnant gets what's good, what's prepared. Because one day, there will be no more righteous men on earth. Unrighteous, rather, I'm sorry. The wicked will be judged. And all of those who are hidden in Christ will remain. And 
redemptively speaking, they will come out of their bunkers, their houses like they did in Egypt, and they are safe. And what they will inherit is something far more glorious than the small temple that was built through Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember, they mourned because the temple was smaller than Solomon's temple. The glory of the second house was not as great as the glorious of the first house. But I tell you this, the glory of the house that Christ is building now, what does he say? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. How can we imagine what Christ has prepared? And so when we look at the book of Zephaniah, I think it's very applicable for days like today because I think in many ways we who are alive here now, especially in the world in which we live, in the West, with our neighbors, we see something that we once had that is on the decline, a social consciousness, a, a sort of a national consciousness, and that's gone, it seems. And the question for us is what? Are we alone? Is it just us left? And that God says, no. Billions. And whatever time God gives us, us on earth, what we know is God will give to the generations of the saints victory in their labors. Because we know, as the prophet Habakkuk prophesied, that the remnant shall grow and grow and grow, and they shall cover the earth like water covers the seas. Why? Because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and the Spirit has been sent out into all the earth. That's our great hope. Let's pray.